got to turn my mic on. There we go. I don't want to pull Scotty. Okay. Morning once again. Okay, today we're going to be going through um, a really cool part of Matthew. I'm not going to give a big introduction because there's a lot here. Um, but uh, just for the record, we are going through the book of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Lord willing, until we get through the whole thing. Uh, because there's just so much in here, and there's so many amazing lessons to be learned, and so many life application things in here, just like the rest of Scripture. Uh, and so uh, we're going through that verse by verse. We're breaking it down topically. Now, today, that's all the introduction you're going to get, because I don't have much time. Okay, but um, we all, today we're going to talk about something we all struggle with. Okay, the title of today's message is What Really Matters. But what we all struggle with is we all have something that we struggle just giving to the Lord. Something we struggle to surrender to the Lord. You know, I mean, maybe a little bit, but we can't completely surrender it to the Lord. How many people have that in their life? Okay, the rest of you are liars. Anyway, because, because I mean, that's, we're human, right? We just have that one thing. As a matter of fact, when I was talking about the one thing you're holding back from the Lord, I'll bet everybody already thought of what theirs is. And they're really easy to identify because usually it's whatever you're trying to justify or excuse. Whatever you're constantly finding yourself justifying or excusing, generally that's what you're holding back from the Lord. Okay, now and a lot of times we'll play it off by saying things like, we'll say, well, I mean, no one's perfect and everybody sins, so you can't really judge me. Anybody ever been guilty of saying that? <laughs> I love the participation. Thank you. I appreciate that. But we're all a little bit guilty of that, right? All of us struggle with that just a little bit. We'll, we'll say, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's no big deal. Everybody sins. This is mine. This is my little sin that I love and take care of. It's the only one. We all struggle giving everything up. Sometimes we even try to take the attention off of what we're struggling with by pointing at someone else's struggles. You ever do that? I'm not even going to make you raise your hands on that one, right? You ever say, well, yeah, I might struggle with that, but at least I don't struggle with what they struggle with. You know what I mean? We all have those things. Today we're going to see something similar to that because today we're going to discuss a young man who had almost everything. It seemed like everything anyone could want. I mean, he had riches, he had religion, he had a great reputation, but the thing he didn't have was what was eating him alive. And what he didn't have was a relationship with Jesus. The problem was he was so distracted by what didn't matter, he missed out on what really did. And it's kind of sad, but you'll see as we move through this. So the message again is called What Really Matters. But I'll tell you, as a pastor, one of the saddest things I've seen, and I've seen a lot of sad things over the last 20 plus years. Um, I started preaching when I was 12, so I'm 32. But um, no, uh, but there's, I've been at a lot of bedsides when people have left this world. And one of the things that's really sad is when people figure out what really matters too late. I've never been at someone's bedside that's worried about their money, or their properties, or their job, or their reputation. When you're at their bedside, they are worried about things like, gosh, I just wish I could have spent more time with my family. Now that I know my time is, is, is short, I really regret all the times I took off and didn't really have to. All the times I worked more than I needed to. Those are the things that they regret. They figure out what really matters too late. The worst yet is when you come to someone's bedside and they say, you know, I really wish I would have taken time to get to know Jesus. Now, don't take me wrong, he will forgive you in an instant, and I've seen a lot of people come to Christ on, on their deathbed. But even so, when they have that, that feeling of the Holy Spirit moving inside them, they regret that they didn't take the time to get to know Jesus because they realize that's what really matters. 
So today Jesus is going to talk about two different sets of priorities. Let's take a look at this, starting in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. It says, Then children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked him. But Jesus said, Let the little children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying hands on them, he departed from there. Now, there was a, a, a Jewish tradition, uh, and what they would do is people would bring their children to rabbis or to elders and have them lay hands on them and bless them or pray for them. That was very common, and they would do that. This is probably what was going on here. These people probably identified him as a teacher. Uh, they identified him as a man from God, and they wanted him to lay hands on them and, and bless them and pray for them. Right? But as they're coming with their kids, with their children, the disciples try to stop them. The disciples try keeping them from coming to Jesus. Now, you guys remember when we preached on chapter 18? I mean, evidently, they forgot what Jesus did the last time they tried this. Matthew 18, starting in verse 3. Uh, Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, unless you are converted and become what? Like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself, what? As this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, this wasn't a real cush message here. You know, I mean, this was really honest. He said, listen, don't hinder him. It's better that you be drowned with a big rock around your neck than it is that you would hinder one of these children from coming to me. How could they forget that? You know, but it's sad because they just didn't take children serious, obviously. And sadly, you know, that mentality is still alive when it comes to children and faith today. And it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy because people have the mindset that children have to grow up and be like us before they can understand God, before they can understand what it means to be a Christian. When Jesus said the exact opposite, did he not? He said, we need to become like a child. He said, we need to become like one of them. I mean, he says that over and over, but yet people dismiss children like these disciples did. I mean, I've heard people say, well, they, don't, they haven't done enough to be saved yet. <laughs> I mean, what do you want to do? Wait till they're an addict and in jail? Great life plan. Let's go with that, right? People still do that. It drives me crazy. Here's all they have to be old enough to know. They need Jesus, and they want Jesus. When they're old enough to know that they need Jesus and they want Jesus, they are old enough to believe. Now, I don't know exactly when that happens in their lives. I don't. But I'll tell you one thing. After hearing what happens to people who hinder children, I promise you when a child comes to me and wants to know about Jesus, I'm not getting in their way. I can't swim anyway, let alone put a millstone around my neck. Right? So I just don't understand how this problem still exists. Because here's the thing. We should look at children and learn from them. When they hear what God can do, they believe it. They don't try to run it through their scientific filters. They don't try to run it through what CNN says, what their science teacher said in fourth grade. You know what they run it through? This pure, undefiled heart that the world hasn't had a chance to pollute yet. That's what they filter it through. And they say, you know what? The Bible says that I believe it. If, if God says that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. So they actually know what really matters more than most adults do. So this is, this is the right mindset we're seeing here. But now the next person who we're going to spend most of the time talking about, the next person we're going to talk about, I mean, they didn't really know what mattered. And they should have. 
Look at this, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. How many people have ever heard of the rich young ruler? Raise your hand. Okay, we're going to blow up what you've probably been taught about that this morning up front. Okay, Matthew 19, 16, it says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall what? I do that I may obtain eternal life. Notice anything strange there? That one personal pronoun, right? What good thing shall I do that I may obtain, meaning I may go out and get eternal life? So what happens is Jesus is approached by this rich young ruler. And it's funny because by what we've read, we wouldn't know he was a rich young ruler. But when Luke gives this account, he tells us that he had a, a position in religious leadership. And as we get to verse 22, we'll find out he's loaded. So Luke 18, 18 says, Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Luke also tells us that he called him good teacher. We'll look at that here in a minute. Now this this whole account is so important. This whole story is so important. But one of the big things that I think Jesus wanted to do with this story was kind of debunk a myth that had been going around. A huge myth that went through the Jewish people. Because the Jews believed that wealth was a sign of God's approval. They thought if someone was loaded, then they must be righteous because God was blessing them. And Jesus wanted to debunk that myth. Now, honestly, the disciples probably believed that. I mean, they were raised in Jewish culture, so they probably believed that too. So they were probably shocked when this wealthy, well-respected Jewish man comes up and says, what do I have to do to obtain eternal life? And they're probably thinking, well, you're rich. You've got God's approval. Why are you asking this, right? But this was the, the myth that he wanted to debunk. All right, so here's what happens. He probably heard that Jesus was coming to town. He'd heard about all the things he had done. You know, he'd walked on water. He'd raised people from the dead. He'd fed thousands with a few loaves and a few fish, calmed the storms by speaking. He, he knew that he was a man from God. And he's like, okay, this guy's coming to town. I'm going to get some answers. Because, see, despite the fact that he was rich and despite the fact that he was well-respected and he was prominent, he felt this void in his life. He felt this emptiness in his life. And he wanted Jesus to tell him, why? So he was looking for some answers, and I can't help but think he also may have wanted Jesus to just reassure him. Because everybody he had talked to about this had probably told him, you're rich. You're rich. You have to have God's approval, or why would you be rich? So maybe he was even hoping that he would go to Jesus and say, how do I obtain eternal life? And Jesus would say, oh, you're good. I mean, you're good. You're loaded. You've got land. I mean, you're prominent. You're good, man. I should be asking you questions. That's probably what he was hoping that he would hear from Jesus, right? But it's funny because the way he asked this when he comes to Jesus, the way he asked this question reveals that not only did he not have God's approval, he really didn't understand God's plan of salvation at all. He was religious, but understand something. Religion and Christianity are something, too, something totally different. Okay, religion is man's attempt to reach God. That's what it is. Okay, religion isn't a good thing. Religion put Jesus on the cross. Okay, just throwing it out there. But, I mean, he should have, you would think, being raised a Jew, being prominent, known God's salvation plan better than this. But he really didn't, and the way he asked this reveals it. Because he said, what can I do? What can I do? He actually believed that eternal life could be earned, could be deserved. Time and time again, we see in the scripture that we are saved by the grace of God. Of God. The word grace means unmerited favor, something you can't deserve. You can't earn 
grace, or it is no longer grace. Right? I, am, I don't know about you guys. I mean, some of you self-righteous people might disagree with this, but you disagree with everybody. I'm telling you, I am thankful it's not by works. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to be perfect? Because let's be honest, no matter what, you, what face you put on at church, you know the you that you don't want anybody else to know. The you that gets cut off in traffic, how many people say, bless you? The you that wants to talk to your child's teacher when they humiliate them, how many people go in and say, I just came to pray with you? That's not, that's not you. The you that hits their hand with a hammer, the you that hits, does anybody do anything righteous when they hit their head? I got to know. Am I the only one that gets furious when I hit my head and there's no one to be mad at but me? It, it does, it generates an anger in you that no man can explain. You hit your head and you're like, I just want to punch a puppy or something. You know, you're just angry. Because when you're alone and no one's looking, you become the you you don't want anyone else to know. Right? And that you, that you you don't want anyone else to know should make you thankful that we are not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I quote this a lot because this is the, the passage that actually led me to Christ. It says, for by grace... Greek word charis, meaning unmerited favor. By grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Okay? Let me read that again. For by grace, unmerited favor, something you don't deserve, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the grace of God. Listen, verse 9, my favorite. Not as a result of not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I literally had someone come up to me one time and say, listen, I know what you preach, <laughs> which that conversation started off in a way that I knew it just wasn't going to be good, you know? It wasn't like, oh, I heard what you preach. It's like, I know what you preach, you know what I mean? Maybe with a little less feminine there, but anyway. And I go, really, what's that? He said, you preach it, you get to heaven without works. The Bible just doesn't teach that. And I go, the Bible actually teaches exactly that. It teaches in, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, 2 Timothy 1, 9. I can go on and on. I mean, it says we are not saved by works. Because if we could earn it, we would brag about it. We'd get to heaven and go, party starts now, I'm here. I earned it. Wouldn't we? Think, watch, watch what sports has become. It'll tell you what we are when we do well. You know, so, I mean... This is something he didn't understand, and he should have understood. Because even in the Old Testament, it was always about faith alone. People think, oh, in the Old Testament, you had to keep the law. No. In the Old Testament, the law was given to them to prove that they could not be good enough and that they needed to have faith in Christ alone, the coming Christ. Right? Abraham's a prime example, Galatians 3, 6. says, even so, Abraham, what? Believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or credited to him as righteousness. All right, so this is what he believed. And because he believed this, because he believed in a works-based salvation, because he believed that, some of the answers Jesus is going to give him is going to shock him. Okay, Matthew 19, 17. And he said to them, uh, said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? Remember, Luke tells us he called him good teacher. He says, there is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus starts off by saying, listen, why are you asking me what's good? Why did you call me good? Let me get this straight. There's only one good, 
Even the Jewish faith teaches that. The only one that's good is God. So if you're calling me good, down deep you know I'm God. He was trying to get this settled in his mind before he moved on. I want to make it really, really clear. Then he does something that kind of confuses people. He says the only way to enter into the kingdom, and whenever it says enter in, it's talking about salvation. He says the only way to enter the kingdom is by keeping the commandments. Now, do you think Jesus believed it was possible to keep the commandments? No. He didn't believe that. He didn't believe that for a second. Right? And that young man didn't believe that. That young man may have acted like he kept all the commandments, but he knew the hymn that only he knew. The guy we talked about earlier, right? When maybe a chariot wheel slipped off and he busted his finger. I and mean, he knew that guy. Right? So he, even he knew that he couldn't keep all those commandments. The only way you could do that is to be absolutely perfect. The only one who was ever supposed to be absolutely perfect was the coming Messiah. So he knew and Jesus knew he could not do this. Yet Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now, knowing he can't do this, you think he would say, Lord, that's impossible. I can't keep the commandments. There must be something else. But he had so much pride and so much arrogance that he just couldn't admit that to him. So I think it's funny how he replies. Jesus said, you want to enter the kingdom? Keep the commands. Both of them knew it was impossible. So he replies, then he said to him, which ones? <laughs> this is a diversion. Is it, have your, your kids ever done this? Why didn't you mow the lawn? Well, you didn't say specifically when to mow the lawn. You said that there was a lawn and it needed to be mowed. You may have implied that it was today. You just didn't say today. This is what he's doing. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's kind of funny. The Ten Commandments are actually written in two sections. Okay, the first five deals with man's relationship to God. You know, you shall have no other God before me, no graven images, right? That's what the first five are about. The second five are about man's relationship with each other. That's what the second five are about. Now, notice that he only quoted the second five. I mean, that was enough. He couldn't keep those either. But he only quoted the second five. Why did he do that? Why did he just quote the ones that were about our relationship with people? And the answer is probably because he's a rich guy, and this is probably where he struggled. When he said, love your neighbors yourself, he's probably thinking, my neighbor is poor. He has no reputation. He's like a dog to me. Why would I love him? He's not important. You see what I mean? He just listed those five because this is probably what this man struggled with the most. Now, this guy's not going to admit that. So he says something else to Jesus, and this time he reveals a little bit more about himself. I mean, he, re he reveals that he's still arrogant. That's not going away. But he also reveals that he has some uncertainty. Matthew 19, 20, it says, The young man said to, them, said to him, All these things I have kept. There's the arrogance. Had he really kept all those? No. That was his arrogance and pride. What am I still lacking? There's the uncertainty. Well, if you've kept all those, you shouldn't be lacking anything. The fact that you're lacking something tells me you can't keep all those and you know it. Right? So right away we know two things about this guy just from what we've seen so far. First of all, he's a big fat liar. Right? Because he knew he couldn't keep these things. So we know he's a liar. No one could keep the commandments but Jesus. And the second thing we know about him is the Holy Spirit is genuinely dealing with him. Because no matter what he looks at, no matter how he looks at the good things he's done, no matter 
how much wealth he has, how much prominence he has. He still has this void. Something is still aching inside of him saying, you are incomplete. The Holy Spirit was definitely dealing with this man and telling him, you are not good enough. Quit listening to what everyone is whispering in your ears. You're just not good enough. So those are the two things we know. He's a liar, first of all. And second of all, the Holy Spirit is genuinely dealing with him, telling him he wasn't good enough. Now, remember, people all around him, you know how people suck up to the rich? You ever notice that? That's why no one sucks up to me. You know, (laughs) I just must be, God must know that I would be a complete jerk if I had any money. He's like, I am never giving you any money, Chris. You would be a complete jerk. You know, this is why no one sucks up to me. But people suck up to rich people. So people were probably telling him all the time, oh, you do all kinds of good things. I mean, look at the money you gave to the synagogue and look at how you gave money to the big wedding that took, uh, you do all kinds of good things. And they, you know, it's not that they weren't good, but the good things he had done were, they were the result of religion. They weren't the result of his regeneration. They, They weren't the result of him becoming a new man and wanting to love people like God loves people. He was just being religious. He knew that'd make him look good in the community, right? So we know the Holy Spirit was dealing with him. Now, I want to ask you something. Do you remember the moment you first realized something was missing? Because I'm telling you, when the Holy Spirit starts on you, he's not going to stop. It, 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 it's never going to stop. You might reject him till the day you die, but he's going to keep calling. He's going to keep tapping on your shoulder. I remember when he first started dealing with me, to be honest with you, I was so confused. I didn't know anything other than the fact that I had no assurance. I didn't know where I was going when I died. That's all I knew. And this religion was telling me this thing, and this religion was telling me this thing, and religions were warring against each other, all the devil's plans coming together perfectly in my life. But no matter what was going on around me, no matter how good things were or how bad things were, inside me, I was incomplete. I just knew I wasn't right with God. I mean, I knew that. No one had to tell me that. I, I knew that. And when that's happening to you, you're thinking, what's wrong with me? Listen, that is very, very common. You know why? Because that is what the Holy Spirit's job is. His job is to let you know you need Jesus and that you're not good enough. Just like he was telling this rich young ruler. He says, what am I still lacking? How did he know he was lacking? Because the Holy Spirit every day, every minute was saying, yeah, this is all a facade. They think you're righteous, but you know you're not. All the people look up to you and think you have God's approval. You know you don't. You've got to do something about this. And this is why he sought Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit's job. John 16, 8, Jesus says, and when he, capital A, is talking about the Holy Spirit, just a side note, don't ever call the Holy Spirit an it. That just gets in my crawl, okay? He's a he. But anyway, uh, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world of what? Of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that what? It refuses to believe in me. That's the world's sin. You know, the Holy Spirit tells people, you're not right with God. Don't worry about getting good enough. Don't worry about what you can do except that you're not good enough. And allow him to make you over new. Because that's the only way this is going to happen. It's the only way this is going to happen. And when he moves in, he doesn't stop. Right? And then despite this guy's arrogance, despite that, just what I described is what was happening to him. 
The Holy Spirit was on his trail. And Jesus isn't making this any easier because the next answer he gives this young man probably floored him. Uh, Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, okay, now let me back up. He just told him, if you want to be good, keep the commandments, which he could not do. Jesus knew it, he knew it. Kind of feels like he's toying with him, but he's not. He's trying to, you know, make a point here. Cover all the bases. First he tells him you have to keep all the commandments. Now listen, Jesus said to him, I wish, uh, I'm sorry, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Can you imagine what happened at about that time? He's probably like, okay, everybody out of the pool. I'm done, this conversation's over. He says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away, what? Grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Okay? So Jesus made it really simple for him. He said, okay, I think we agree you can't keep them all. So let's do this. Sell everything that you have. And just come and follow me. Sell everything. And the young guy's like, oh. because his identity had become his, his wealth. His identity had become his position, his properties. That was his identity now. And it was so important to him that that had become his God. That had become the thing he worshipped so much that he couldn't bring himself what he considered down to worship Jesus. He couldn't do that. Right? He, it was too important to him. Now, there's something I want to cover really quick. This is the part of the story when everyone gets the wrong idea. People hear this and they say, See, Jesus was saying that God wants us all to be broke. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's not saying he wants everybody to be broke. Do you realize Abraham left everything when God called him? And God called him, it was a voice saying, Abraham, get rid of everything and follow me. Pretty similar. And Abraham just said, all right, and left. I mean, that, that's the story in a nutshell. Okay. And he left. Took his family, left his flocks. I mean, left, left everything pretty much, but a few animals and took off and followed him. Right? And Abraham ended up being our equivalent of a billionaire. And that, I don't know who did the math, but they talked about his flocks and his lands and all the possessions he had. In our day and time, he would have been a billionaire. And he left everything to follow Jesus. So he's not saying that he wanted him to be poor. He's not saying, if you want to go to heaven, sell your house, you know, get rid of your car, throw all your clothes away, you know, and just walk behind me in some boxer shorts and you'll go to heaven. That's not what he was saying. It's not what he was saying, right? What he was saying is, I want you to trade in your wealth for my wealth. I want you to stop fighting every day to hold on to what you have, your wealth. And come enjoy the abundance of my wealth. And you don't have to do anything. I'll take care of it. You don't have to protect it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to invest it. I'll take care of it. Get rid of that wealth which perishes and invest in my wealth. Which lasts for eternity. All he was saying is, he's not saying I want you to be poor. He's saying I want you to be rich in a different way. I want you to be rich in love and grace and peace and the joy that comes with my wealth. That's what he was trying to say to him, right? Listen, what he was saying is, I want you to make God the thing you can't live without instead of your wealth and your land. That's what I want. 
Instead of all the things you hold above him that you worry about every day, just make God the thing you can't live without. The wealth you refuse to lose, make that God. That's what he was asking. Now, I love this parable. We're not done yet, but I love this story, actually. It's not a parable. Because whether you're a believer or not, this applies. Because we all have treasures that we put before God. And there's always people who say, oh, not me, not me. You're a liar. We all have, thank you. <laughs> From the mouths of babes, that is true. That's when you know, right? <laughs> we all have that. And we may not even realize how important those things are becoming to us until they've taken us over. We may not even realize that. And that's by design. Because if you're an unbeliever, the enemy wants you to get so distracted with something else that you look right past God and never have eternal life. He wants you to have a new God, which is whatever treasure you put before God. And if you're a believer, he doesn't want you to be effective. Okay, you're saved. I can't change that. What I can do is make sure you don't share that with anybody else. So I'll find something for you to worship instead of me. And then you'll just be that worthless Christian everybody uses as bad examples. Right? So this is his design. It's what he does. And listen, when I say that you can have wealth that you put above him that becomes your God, it doesn't have to be money, wealth. I mean, it can be a relationship. You ever seen the person who just is all about I mean, creepy about somebody. You know, if, if you're that person, you probably don't have a lot of girlfriends, do you? Because that creeps them out. You know, I mean, I've known people that their whole life is about their relationship. That's all they talk about. That's all they do. You know, I mean, whatever he wants, whatever she wants, right? It can be, that can be a God to you because it takes precedent over God. Believers can do that. It can be a job, and that's one that's easy to excuse away. Well, God tells us to work. He doesn't tell you to work all the time and not be a father, not be a husband, not be a wife. He doesn't tell you that. You like the money. Be honest, right? It can be a job. That can become a God to you. That can become the wealth you hold above him. Religion. I know everybody's going, what? There are people who love religion but don't really love Jesus. They love to dress like the church says. They love to talk like the church says. They love to do the thing the church tells them, makes them look good. But they don't do anything that God's telling them because they're not spending any time with God. They have replaced time with God, worshiping God, studying God's word. They've replaced that with going to church every time the doors are open. I'm not knocking it, but ask yourself what you're doing. Ask yourself. Because you know how cults get started? When people stop reading and start following a religion, that is how cults get started, all right? If you're that person, watch out for the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it, okay? I'm just telling you, that's how it gets started. It can be religion, right? It can be an addiction, whatever. Anything that pulls your eyes off of God that you value more than God, that is the treasure that you're holding back from him. That has become your God, and it will destroy you whether you're a believer or not. It won't take your eternal life from you if you're a believer, but it'll make you worthless. And if you're an unbeliever, it will trick you and deceive you out of ever believing. You know, there's something else I find interesting about wealth. And especially people who worship wealth. Because, you know, I was kind of shocked. I was talking to a guy, and he told me he made close to half a million dollars a year. And immediately I'm thinking, I don't like you. I don't know you, but nobody should make that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, he's, I like him, kind of. But... 
Here's the thing. He, you know, he says, I make half a million dollars a year. Close to it. He said, anything I want, I can buy it. I'm hating him more by the second. You know, anywhere I want to go, I can go. He said, I have pretty much what anybody would want. And he said, I am the most miserable man alive. He said, I would trade all of it to have what you have. And I'm like, you evidently don't know what I have. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I get it. I know what he was trying to say. Because his whole life had been about getting more power, more authority, more money, and holding on to it. You ever notice that? Why do people who make a billion dollars keep working? Can somebody tell me that? Why do people who have $2 million keep working? I mean, it, people, they asked the Rockefeller, the John Rockefeller one time, they said, hey, you're the richest man in the world. When will it be enough? He goes, I don't know, maybe when I get a little more. Richest man in the world at that time. Right, so here's the thing about wealth that, that the enemy uses against us, and we fall for it so quickly, is when we have wealth, it becomes so important to us that all we do is hold on to it. We spend our whole life squeezing and, and grasping and trying to hold it, not let anybody take it from us. If you're a believer, you know what the problem is? When you've got those hands closed on the wealth you have, when God tries to pour more blessing out on those hands, nothing can get in them. Because you're holding on too tight to what you've made to receive what he wants you to have. Right? It's only when you open those hands and trust God with what you have that he can actually pour more in in something that you may value more than what you've been holding on to for years that has made you miserable. It's made you miserable. When we talk about money in the church, everybody always goes, oh, here we go. Which, I've said this before, but gosh, that ticks me off. Because we don't have that mentality with anything else. Nothing else. You know, you join a country club and walk in, they say, that'll be $1,500. You don't go, here we go, you're all about money. You just write the check. You're thinking, wow, they got to mow the lawn, they got to keep the lights on, they got to keep the Coke machine working, the bar filled. Makes sense, I'll pay it, you know, I'll write a check. You don't walk in and go, I hate golf, you guys are all about money, I'm out. That's what we do with church, isn't it? You know, when you, get, when you go to those Vera Bradley sales, which I'm going to be honest with you, I know a lot of you guys have those things, but they all kind of look like grandma's purse to me. I'm just going to be honest with you. But, <laughs> but people go to these Vera Bradley sales, and they walk in and pick up a bag, and the guy says $400, they should pass out and run for the door, you don't hear them saying, that's all Vera Bradley's about, money, 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 I'm never coming here again. You know what? They go, well, you know, they made it. They got to have this place to rip us all off with, so, I mean, somebody's got to keep the lights on. <laughs> Write the check. When you talk about money in service to God, why is it everybody always goes, that's all churches are about, money? I just want to tell you, if you believe that way, I love you, but you're ignorant. Do the math. They think, well, God passes over once a month and goes, the bills are paid, and keeps going. <laughs> Listen, money, God doesn't need your money, but you know what the last stronghold is that people hate to give up for God? The last idol, the last treasure that people hate to give up for God is money. And sometimes God just wants you to say, trust me, I'm not going to make you poor. I want to show you that even money, the thing that people have killed over, the thing that people have abandoned their families over, that one powerful word, money, that even money is not more powerful than me. And that I will bless you even in that area because anything you hold above me, I can no longer bless. 
1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says, Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what that means is people can't tell you what to give. That's why we don't. That's why we don't have baskets. That's why we have boxes and internet and all the other stuff that I can't do. Right? Because it's between you and God. It has to be determined by you, not by anybody else. If you want to help your neighbor, it can't be because I said you should go help your neighbor. It should be because God has moved on your heart. You have the access to help them help them. That's why you should do it. Right? That's what that means. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have what? An abundance for every good deed. God is saying, I want you to trust me and know that I am going to take care of you, that I am bigger than money. It's the last stronghold. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having wealth or possessions. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not dissing people who have money and possessions as long as you know where it came from, first of all, and are thankful for where it came from. And before you say, God didn't give me this, I gave me this. Well, he's giving you the next breath in your lungs, and if he takes that, tell me how much money you're going to earn. No, your wife will be spending it with Biff, the guy she meets on her next excursion. <laughs> okay? So you didn't earn it, he earned it. So I just want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with having money as long as you know where it came from and how to prioritize it. And here's the big thing I want you to remember. Just make sure that the wealth you're fighting so hard to hold on to hasn't taken a hold of you and isn't holding on to you. Make sure of that. Now, the next section, kind of Jesus wants to talk about the whole rich thing. Matthew 19, 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's meaning here is someone who is trusting in riches and wealth for righteousness. Right? To enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, so many people overthink what Jesus is saying here, and it drives me nuts. People say, well, what that really means is there's this gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. And people have to get their camels down on their hands and knees, and I'm like, I want to see that. And then they have to take all their packs off, and then they have to shove it through this hole in the gate so it can enter the city. That's what it's talking about. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome, except that would make the analogy not work. Because what he was saying is someone who is trusting in riches and wealth for heaven will never get there. He was saying it is impossible for someone who is trusting in riches for eternal life to get into heaven. Making your camel get down and limbo under a gate is still possible. Strange and possible. No, when he said a camel through the eye of a needle, he meant a big, fat, hairy, smelly, spitting camel jammed through the eye of a sewing needle. That, it was supposed to be funny. He had a great sense of humor. He's going, if you can take this camel and jam it through a needle, then someone who is trusting in riches can get to heaven that way. That's what he was trying to say. Okay, we overthink that so much. Now, the disciples heard this, and they were confused. Okay, look at this, Matthew 19, 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, what? 
all things are possible. Sound like any verse we know? Yeah, I almost put it in there, but I was running short on time. Okay, so listen. Again, the disciples thought that wealth meant righteousness. So when he said, how hard will it be for someone who who trusts in their wealth, how hard will it be for them to get to heaven? It's impossible. And when they hear that, they're like, man, I thought those were the righteous people. If they can't go, who's going? This is what they thought. And this, it really, it really kind of shocked them because now Jesus is saying the polar opposite. They were raised to think wealth is a sign of God's approval. Jesus is saying, nope, it can be. It can also be the thing that keeps people from heaven. If they're going, if rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? And what Jesus says is he says, listen, anybody can be saved when they realize that not by wealth, not by religion, not by good works, not by anything they can do, when they realize that none of those things will get them to heaven and just simply trust in my son who died on a cross innocently, was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose again on the third and appointed day, when someone can believe in that as being enough, and it is, then they'll go to heaven. But all that other stuff isn't going to get them there. And there's going to be people and and schools and religions and seminaries and everything going to tell them something different. But here's the truth. Trying to get to heaven any other way than by Christ alone is a waste of time and is impossible. But to the person that says, I know what really matters. I don't care what I have as long as I have Jesus. That person, nothing's impossible. That's what he was trying to say. And that's what I want to leave you with. Because listen, we live in a, in a time where money is king. Power is king. Right? I mean, your title means more than your character. Religions fighting, churches bickering with each other. I imagine that makes God want to barf. You know, we're all down here trying to bring people into heaven. And we're fighting with each other. Idiots. Not me saying that. God saying that. Okay, I am saying that. But... You know, we live in a time where the the devil has us so confused and running in circles when the simple message of the gospel is, John 6, 40, for whoever beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. Red letters, that's Jesus. I believe it. I don't care what religion it is. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I believe that. Everybody goes, that seems simple. I go, that's because we make it complicated. By finding other gods. By being distracted when the truth of the matter is simple. It's impossible to get there trusting in anything else other than Jesus. But those who will do that simple thing, nothing will be impossible to them. I just think that's so powerful. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. This is your first time. We always like to give an invitation. I say that every week. And when you hear invitation, you think of someone begging and pleading for someone to come down up, come up front. I, I don't do that. That's ridiculous. I'm probably going to get in trouble for just saying that. But here's the thing. I believe the Holy Spirit is still alive and active, and I believe that he is talking to people. And I remember being out there and the preacher saying, we're going to give an invitation. I put my head down thinking, this is stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wasn't a great guy. What am I supposed to tell you? And then he started talking and saying, if you know the Spirit's talking to you, and I'm not going to point you out, I just want to pray for you. He said, just make eye contact with me. And as I was saying how stupid it was, my eye was coming up to look at him because I knew something was wrong. And so I swore that I would always give someone an opportunity to at least allow me to pray for him. So if you're one of those people that's not sure where you stand with Christ, 
While every head is bowed, just make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to point you out. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down after church. I'm not going to email you. That's between you and God. Bless those people. I'm just going to pray for you because I've been there. And I just want you to recognize he's speaking and acknowledge the fact that he was sent to you because God loves you. And if you're confused, it's not confusion that comes from him. Bless those people. I'm going to pray for those people. And if you're listening online or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But believers, I really think the time is short. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and act like a prophet. I'm just going to tell you I believe the time is short. I'm not going to tell you it's worse than it's ever been because it's not. Just according to the eschatological scale or the end time scale, we're winding down. We don't have time to be fighting with other churches. We don't have time to be debating theology with each other. We don't have time to sit and judge people that walk in our doors. Here's what we have time to do. Share the simple truth about Jesus Christ. Those simple verses I told you. Let them know how simple it is. So that they might believe. That's our job. I'm going to pray for us as believers because, man, I just, it burdens my heart. That the very people that were put here to change the world also are getting distracted and forgetting their job. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I know I say this all the time. But, Lord, I am so amazed at your grace. I'm the only one that knows how bad I was. I'm the only one that knows how bad I can still be. And to think that you love me despite me, not because of me. To think that you sent your son to die in my place to be good enough for me so that all I'd have to do is believe in him. That amazes me. And I still struggle to comprehend it because grace like that is truly amazing but I'm thankful for it. And I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, it's not our job to judge that. That's between them and you. But you see into the heart of every person, and I just pray that, that all the confusion will be pushed away and that they can just feel the love that took your son to the cross and trust that for their eternal life. It's just that simple. And if they can do that, God, I just pray they reach out to us or if they're a long way from here, they reach out to a good church or a good Christian person they know so that they can make that connection and have someone walk with them in their journey and walk them through this journey. I don't know who's going to receive that, God, but I, I thank you for them in advance. And God, for those of us who are believers, please let us remember this is about you. It's not about our denomination. It's not about our buildings. It's not about our bylaws. It's about you and seeing how many people we can lead to you it's about us enlarging the borders of the kingdom by sharing your grace let us refocus remove anything any treasure anything that is hindering us from submitting to that and let us once again make you the ruler of our lives and let us follow you and fulfill the duty you gave us I just want you to bless us to live what we profess, God. We pray that as we leave here today, you would go with us and keep us safe. 
We pray, God, that when people hear us, they hear you and they see the things we do, they see you working. And Lord, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would be excited about coming here one more time and giving you all the praise and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.